bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean, and this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. One quick thing before we begin. We've been asked, how can you pick up a signed copy of our book, New York City's Heart Island, A Cemetery of Strangers, and our audiobook narrated by Norma Jean? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeene.com. As city planners and medical professionals attempted to deal with the seemingly never-ending onslaught of infectious viruses, plagues, and scourges that struck New York City during the 19th and early 20th century, it required difficult decisions be made. The creation of Heart Island was one such solution. And yet the worst was around the corner As the nations of Europe raged across countless battlefields, drenched in the blood of millions, a terrifying world-threatening pandemic loomed, one for which no one was prepared. It was the great influenza epidemic, which killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide, and tens of thousands in New York City alone. And to help us understand this period, John M. Berry is an author and historian. His New York Times bestsellers, Rising Tide, The Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, won the Francis Parkman Prize from the Society of American Historians for the best book on American history. And in 2005, the New York Public Library named it one of the 50 best books of all kinds whether fiction, nonfiction, or poetry. And his book, The Great Influenza, the epic story of the greatest plague in history, won the United States National Academies of Science Award, which called it the year's outstanding book on science or medicine. And we are so pleased to have John M. Barry with us today, Talking Heart Island. Mr. Barry, how are you this morning? I'm doing well. well uh, do you mind if I flash a little ego here? 
Go ahead. Okay. The uh, I mean, I'm kind of proud of this, so I hope I don't sound too egomaniacal. But uh, the New York Public Library named Rising Tide one of the 50 best books in the preceding 50 years. Holy uh, moly. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, gl- I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, that, that's a, that, that, that's, okay, in, that's we, incredible. Uh, yeah, anytime you want to flash your ego while we're doing this, feel free. Hopefully, I'll keep it under wraps for the rest oh, of the time. Okay, okay. Um, I know we're here to talk about the book, The Great Influenza, and we're certainly going to do so. But your book, Rising Type, by the way, um, as you pointed out, I've only bought two of your six books, so I still have some work to do, but I got The Great Influenza and also Rising Tide. And Rising Tide, I'd like you to spend a few minutes on because not only is it a fascinating story, but in its own way led to, I don't know if inspiration is the right term, but led you to eventually write the book, uh, The Great Influenza. So can you tell us what Rising Tide is about? Well, when I, I grew up in Rhode Island, but I was always fascinated with the Mississippi River because it contains so much of American history, really. Uh, in fact, what is now called the Journal of American History, when it was first came out, which is the premier publication for historians, uh, it was called the Mississippi Valley Historical Review. But, you know, the question is, how do you, and I always want to write about the Mississippi how do you do that in a way that will allow you some breadth and also get people to read it? And I was living in New Orleans in 1977 and lived there now too, uh, which was the 50th anniversary of the flood. I was writing for a sports column for an alternative uh, weekly and they ran a special issue on that 1927 flood. I had never heard of it. It was considerably bigger than Katrina in terms of impact on gross domestic product. It was almost double Katrina, which is the biggest impact any hurricane has ever had. And it just seemed to contain so much that, you know, I sort of put that aside and then I had finished my uh, second book and it just kind of bubbled up as an idea. And the closer I looked, the better the story was. Uh, you've got everything from the river itself, which is pretty fascinating, to the Klan, to impact on presidential politics, national demographics, uh, the switch from African-American voters from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party, uh, individual characters who, you know, sound like they they come out of great novels, uh, and, you know, it, it, it just was such a great subject. Uh, I, you know, obviously I did write the book about it and, uh, you know, it was, you know, re- pretty successful, uh, both commercially and, uh, and critically. Uh, but there was a chapter in that book uh, that was about the sort of the background to the 1920s and, and I'd always considered 1919 one of the most fascinating years in American history. Uh, all these pressures were building up during the war. It was almost like you put a, you were holding a top down on a boiling cauldron and the war ended. You 
flip the top and everything just exploded. You had race riots and, you know, dozens of cities. Uh, you had the Red Scare. You, you had uh, attempted assassinations of, of the Attorney General of the United States. Uh, you know, the strikes, violent strikes. Uh, and I'd always wanted to write about, you know, that also, I got into that a little bit in one chapter in, in Rising Tide, and I thought I would write a whole book about it. Uh, but the way I conceived of it, frankly, I, you know, it was going to take me at least six or seven years and probably longer. And I live on in advance. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm associated with Tulane, but I wasn't teaching anything. They weren't paying me anything. In fact, at that point, I wasn't associated with them at all. So I live entirely from what I make as a writer, which really means in advance. And I wasn't going to get an advance that was going to allow me to live decently for somewhere six to eight years for the book that I wanted to write. Uh, but I thought if I did a book on influenza, on the pandemic, it would subsidize my research in the same time period. I thought I could write that book fairly quickly. I was offered what seemed quite a bit of money for a book that I could write in two to two and a half years. Uh, and I you know, agreed to that contract. Uh, the problem was that the influenza book ended up taking seven years. <laughs> And the publisher, publish, you know, the, doesn't care whether you write it in a day or 10 years. They basically advance on what they think they can sell. So they didn't change the advance. And what seemed like a lot of money for a two-year project was not a lot of money for a seven-year project. Sure. And I was, I was looking at life as a graduate student. Again, I was a little old for that. But, you know, uh, in fact... For about five and a half of that seven years, I wished I had never agreed to the contract and wanted to throw the whole thing out the window. But I had cashed a check and I couldn't afford to pay it back. And it was actually a character in the book named Oswald Avery, who's probably the greatest scientist never to win the Nobel Prize. Uh, he was actually being considered for the Nobel Prize for his work on pneumonia when his greatest discovery was that DNA carried the genetic code. And at the time, that was controversial. So they didn't give him the Nobel Prize uh, for his work on pneumonia. And he never got it, even though the DNA discovery started the entire molecular biology revolution. Uh, but he, he went 20 years, practically, with publishing a single scientific paper because he was so consumed with this problem, which ended up DNA. And, you know, watching what he had gone through in his life actually kept me going, I think. Then uh, after about five years or so uh, with the influenza book, it, it came together. And, and the last year and a half, I was very happy with it. And, you know, glad, obviously glad that I did it. Just before we, we get to that book, can you just tell us briefly, in a minute or so, what was the great Mississippi flood of 1927? I mean, what happened? Well, uh, the river went above flood stage on New Year's Day 
Okay, well, the, the floods really started in September 1928. It was one of the worst El Ninos on record. Uh, there were record floods in September in places from Kansas to Indiana, a time when rivers normally are dry. The con- rain continued through the entire Mississippi River Basin pretty much uh, through that fall. And it didn't stop in the spring. In the spring, there were 10 uh, separate storms, excuse me, five separate storms, each one of which was bigger than any individual storm in the preceding 10 years, on top of a entire basin. And the Mississippi River, when I think of it, I don't think of a straight line going south from Minneapolis to the Gulf. I actually think of the whole basin, which includes 31 states and two provinces in Canada, almost from Buffalo, New York, to the Rockies. Uh, So that whole area was inundated, saturated. You get more rain. You got, by a wide margin, the biggest flood that's ever been recorded and much bigger than the floods of 2011, which would be number two. Uh, And it flooded. It killed people from Virginia to Oklahoma. it devastated the lower Mississippi River, which is from Cairo, Illinois, to the Gulf. Uh, at one point, the, f- the river reclaimed its entire natural floodplain on the lower Mississippi, which was almost 100 miles wide. You had an inland sea almost 100 miles across. Uh, and it flooded roughly 1% of the entire population of the United States. Uh and we were obviously a lot smaller country there, so the numbers aren't that big. But roughly uh, 700,000 people were refugees fed by the Red Cross. Uh, the federal government didn't spend a single dime, not a dime, on direct aid to any of these 700,000 people, uh, w- which was one of the impacts of the flood. I think it may be the most subtle but most important. It was a change people's view of the responsibility of the federal government. Uh, and, you know, getting into engineering is, is, as well. So you had this tremendous impact at the end of it. Hoover, well, you can demonstrate with almost mathematical precision, Hoover would never have been elected if it weren't for the flood. He handled the rescue and rehabilitation of the area. He was Secretary of Commerce at the time. And he did a good job. He did a great job. Uh, Kind of the reverse. You know, George Bush's political fortunes took a dive because the mishandling of Katrina. Herbert Hoover was elevated to the presidency because he did a good job uh, handling the Mississippi River flood. Uh, And, you know, I think, as I said, its national impact was very significant, you know, not only in, in electing Hoover uh, changing the way people viewed the role of the federal government. I'll give you an example. There had been a yellow fever epidemic in New Orleans 20 years before the flood. That's the last yellow fever epidemic to hit the U.S. And we already knew how to contain, how to control it, kill mosquitoes. And the army had lowered the death rate from yellow fever in Havana to zero in a year, zero. But before the U.S. Public Health Service would go to New Orleans 
and help save the lives of American citizens, it required the city of New Orleans to pay their expected cost in advance, put it in the bank before they'd go down there. That was the attitude of the federal government toward helping localities or individual citizens. And in the flood with all these hundreds of thousands of people devastated through no fault of their own, that radically changed the way people thought about the role of government. They decided that maybe government did have a role in helping. And we're still trying to define exactly where that line is between individual responsibility and government aid. But I think the vast majority of people do think the government has at least some role. Can you take Uh, a minute or two to uh, talk about Huey Long, which I believe the flood also led to his becoming uh, elected governor of Louisiana, correct? Uh, It certainly was a contributing factor. Uh, The city of New Orleans decided to dynamite the levee outside the city uh, and flood out its neighbors. Uh, And in my view, the unnecessarily so. Uh, The reason it was unnecessary was because the flood crest was never going to make it to New Orleans. Anybody who understood the river understood that levees far upriver were going to break, so the the river would spread out, and by the time it got to New Orleans, the height on the wouldn't, wouldn't threaten the levees. And, you know, New Orleans then, it, it promised, and, and this had to the approval of the federal government and the governor, a guy named Simpson, uh, New Orleans promised to uh, compensate all the victims. New Orleans literally paid a few pennies, not a lot of pennies, on the dollar. Uh, Huey Long ran a campaign against what he called the plutocrats, the self-appointed rulers of the state, which was very definitely the New Orleans banking interests uh, who had orchestrated the dynamiting uh, and won that election. And incidentally, I think just a couple of days ago, uh, Carl Weiss Jr. died. He was the son of the person accused of assassinating Huey Long, and and the son had uh, set, maintained for his, basically his entire life that his father didn't do it. But, you know, the got nothing to do really with what we're talking right. about. Well, let's let's go to <clears throat> the great influenza. You know, when I first thought about <clears throat> this, I thought, well, the returning GIs from Europe after fighting the First World War brought back with them uh, this uh, uh, virus or, or what have you, and that's how it all began. But in reading your book, that's not your take on the origins of this, correct? Right. I mean, nobody knows where it began. Uh, There are hypotheses that it began in uh, France, that it began in China, that it began in Vietnam, uh, that it began in the United States. Nobody, and we will probably never know. Uh, However, I, you know, I did advance a hypothesis and in fact published in, you know, peer-reviewed scientific literature a uh, hypothesis that it began in in, uh, in Kansas. Uh, yeah, since I wrote the book, there's been a lot of work, and you know the 
virus has been uh, extracted, the genome has been analyzed, all sorts of things. I now have backed uh, you know, off my own hypothesis. Uh, as I said, we don't know where it, where it did begin. One thing is clear uh, that it didn't come back from the U- from Europe to the U.S. with troops. If anything, in fact, this is the strongest argument in favor of the the U.S. as a point of origin. Uh, is that it seemed to go from the United States uh, with American troops who were who were infected. Uh, there was no real sign of earlier outbreaks than uh, February and March in the United States. Um, but it's a very difficult virus to deal with. Uh, it mutates so rapidly, and it has the ability to jump species, new viruses, new kinds of viruses that evade the immune system. Uh and, you know, we've always had pandemics. Uh, it's a, a pandemic virus is different from a seasonal influenza virus because your your immune system is used to the seasonal virus. It, it, that virus does mutate very rapidly, which is why you need a new influenza shot every year. But a, a pandemic virus will have some um, aspects to it that are quite different. Uh, from the seasonal influenza virus, it's essentially an entirely new virus. People's immune systems won't recognize it. Most people's won't. And it will spread rapidly. Not all pandemic viruses are necessarily lethal, uh, but 1918 was. And, you know, it killed generally considered to be 50 to 100 million people today. And that was in a world population that's only a little, just about a quarter of today's population. So you multiply that by actually more than four, and and you're talking about the equivalent of 225 to 450 million people today, if you adjust for the population. Uh, it killed all these people in really a period of about 14 weeks. The overwhelming majority died uh, in a very, very short period of time. That's what's so shocking. I mean, besides the numbers, the fact that it happened so quickly, and how can you adjust to something like that? I mean, what, exactly. What, yeah. I'm right. Uh, that's why a pandemic is such a serious threat today. If you had, I mean, when Tom uh, Frieden the uh, was the head of the CDC under Obama when he left the Washington Post, asked him what keeps him up at night, what his worst nightmare is. And he said, it's always influenza. It's always the worst case scenario. Uh, because until we get a vaccine, which could work against uh, basically all influenza viruses, then we're always going to be at risk. Because it takes a long time to develop, manufacture, distribute and administer a vaccine. And if the virus can kill numbers like that in a, in a period of weeks, you are, even if you've got a vaccine that will work against it, then it, you're not going to have it stockpiled or very unlikely. 
you are going to be in a race to the death uh, to get that vaccine out there to save lives. So that, you know, the natural reservoir for all influenza viruses are birds. They're not naturally human viruses, but its mutation rate and some other aspects of the virus allow it to jump species. It will infect, it has infected every mammal. Uh, you talk about swine flu was the last pandemic, a very mild pandemic. Uh, in fact, in 1918, humans gave the influenza viruses to pigs. It wasn't the other way around. Uh, but in 1918, tigers were infected, cats were infected, dogs were infected, seals were infected, moose. I mean, like every known mammal, horses, uh, you know, the, that was a, a very dangerous virus and, and, and widespread. Yeah, I, I can't believe we only have about a minute and a half left. Um, but talk a little bit about the impact that the influenza had on New York City. Uh, you and I spoke offline a few weeks back, and I think you said 33,000 New Yorkers right. died. Right. Um, and, and, and because they died in such a short period of time, uh, were there use? Did they use mass graves? Uh, certainly, in New York, we're talking about uh, Hard Island, which is the uh, country's largest mass graveyard, and uh, presumably uh, some well, of these folks well, ended up there. Honestly, yeah, I I don't know if New York used mass graves. Uh, I know they did in places like Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know, there was a lot of politics. Involved in New York, it's a pretty interesting story. Uh, they had New York had had probably the best municipal public health department in the world. Uh, Tammany Hall, it had been run by reformers. Tammany Hall took over not too long before the pandemic, and and tried to put uh, loyalists into all these places. And they put a uh, somebody who wasn't even an MD uh, in charge of the New York City Public Health Department, but he was a Tammany Hall loyalist. Uh, later, got elected to the U.S. Senate, part of the uh, Tammany operation. Um, and New York City, interestingly, practically every other city in the country closed schools, closed bars, canceled theater performances and so forth. And New York City didn't do any of that because the Tammany Hall didn't want the saloon operators uh, and didn't want their stuff inter interrupted, their businesses interfered with or other businesses, not just saloons. Uh, and, and yet, even though 33,000 people in New York City died, that actually on a per capita basis was considered quite successful. And I think the reason why New York City got off relatively mildly epidemic, uh, uh, which was probably the same virus, people were exposed to it and uh, developed some natural immunity to it. Before we say goodbye to you, uh, take a little time to tell us about your latest book. Well, the latest book isn't so late. It came out uh, in 2012, but it's actually probably my favorite. It's called 
Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, Church, State, and the Birth of Liberty. It's it's set in the 17th century. Uh, and I was going to write a, a book about the uh, role of religion in American public life and just doing due diligence. Uh, I started going back State, which was in the 1600 17th century. Uh, you know, John Winter made the kind of his, the city on a hill comment, which lives on today. But right from the beginning, Roger Williams, who was a Puritan minister, he was considered so, quote, godly that he was offered the ministry of the Boston Church and he turned it down because they weren't pure enough for him. But he developed the uh, the first modern idea, view of, of separation of church and state. Uh, and it's also really tied up with the beginning of the first modern articulation of individual liberty uh, as well. You know, as I say, that book came out uh, in 2012. I've been working on another one since, but got several years before I'm done with that. It takes me a while to write books. Well, uh, John, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on Talking Heart Island. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, Simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself, or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. (laughs) 